0: Good evening and welcome to St. Paul's. My name is Mark Oakley and it's my great pleasure to welcome each and every one of you here to St. Paul's this evening for the last in this series of talks on Lent, Holy Week and Easter. And I'll introduce, of course, our speaker in a moment. But for those of you who've not been to one of these events before, I'll just explain how it works. In a moment, uh, Bishop Stephen will speak about how we can keep the 50-day season of Easter well. And he'll speak for about 30 minutes or so and then we will have plenty of time for you to ask him questions. If you have a question, we ask you to write it on the back of your programme and to hold it up at any point throughout the evening to be collected. It will look as if you're asking to be excused, but I promise you we do know what's going on and we'll collect the questions up until about 7.40. Please keep them brief. Please keep them legible. And um, I am aware that there are lots of things that all of us might want to ask a Church of England bishop at the moment, but we've been terribly disciplined through this series in keeping to the topic of the night. So uh, please, if we could keep to that tradition, uh, I'd be very grateful. We're also taking questions via Twitter using the hashtag #GoodEaster. Easter. So if you'd like to send us your question through your mobile phone, just type in your question and include hashtag and we'll find it and we'll end at eight o'clock and there's a book stall up here of recommended reading for easter and now it gives me great pleasure to introduce our speaker stephen conway is the 69th bishop of ely A priest for almost 30 years, his extremely varied ministry has included urban priority areas as well as town centre, suburban, rural, cathedral ministries all over the country before being installed as the Bishop of Ely in 2011. Hugely busy, he has numerous roles within the church and on ecumenical bodies nationally and internationally. And among other things, he's the lead bishop in the Church of England on Education. He's the patron of the Arthur Rank Hospice and of Arts and Minds, the arts and mental health charity in Cambridge. He's the bishop accompanying the wonderful Larsh communities in the UK, where people with and without learning disabilities live together in community, and which Stanley Howas has described as the thing he's seen that looks most like Christianity. He's also very interested in films and in the arts in general as they relate to and illuminate faith and you'll see that there's a strong hint of that in your programme this evening. I've known Bishop Stephen for quite a few years now. He's a person of gentle humour, insight and I've always understood him as a Christian less concerned to make a point than to make a difference. All this, I think, speaks of someone deeply engaged with the idea of transformation, of full stops turned into commas, and of a Christianity that brings life to the people it serves, inside and outside the church, an Easter Christianity and an Easter people. We spend all that time focusing on the 40 days of Lent, what it is, how to use it, but not so much time, perhaps, on the 50 days of Eastertide. So Bishop Stephen is here to help change that and help us rethink. So would you please join me in welcoming Bishop Stephen Conway. Thanks.
1: It's a joy and a privilege to speak at the invitation of the St Paul's Institute and for an evening, to live Easter with you. In popular culture, any religious celebration of Easter appears in a minor key compared to Christmas. And we know that the Easter cycle is a season upon which all seasons depend. The Lord who comes to share our life does so with delight and purpose. He shares our life in order to change it. We are invited to be transformed, even transfigured, by resurrection life. The invitation issued to us, however we have received it, is to go deeper into Easter faith. I used to work at Durham Cathedral. At its west end, the cathedral has a beautiful Galilee Chapel. The name signifies that it was the gathering place for processions through the cathedral symbolizing Jesus' journey from Galilee to Jerusalem and our journey from earth to heaven with him who has been raised from the dead. In my Easter sermon this year, on the last verses of St. Mark's Gospel, I said the spine-tingling invitation is to follow Jesus by taking up our own cross to lose our life for Jesus' sake in order to find it. The Gospel is open-ended because we are invited to have faith that there is open space for us to inhabit in the new creation. There are pages yet to be written of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, on your heart and mine. Fear and bewilderment, thank goodness, are not the opposite of faith. Faith in God empowers us to dare to lose what is holding us back from finding our true worth in Christ, this and any Easter tide, We can rest in not having all the answers. Happy endings which tie up all the loose ends are for fairy tales. Gospel endings are wide open with the hope that Christ is risen. And the open question is, for us, living the 50 days of Easter, is will we follow him when he calls our name? And I want us to have this question in our minds as I ask um, you to reflect with me on the images that you have been given in your programme. And to start with David Wynne's Noli May Tangere" from 1963 um, in, the, in the South transept of Ely Cathedral. This sculpture anticipated the launch of Twiggy's modeling career by two years. To visitors in the 1960s, it must have looked both contemporary and strangely out of time. Mary is struggling to recognize the figure in front of her, partly because he has been peeled back to skin and bone more essence than person and partly if we interpret the hand shielding her eyes correctly because of the light radiating from the resurrected Jesus. This Jesus would not pass for a gardener. His body is reminiscent of images of the crucified Christ and his hugely exaggerated bony hands would not be able to use a spade. They resemble the skeletal shape of wings as they point upwards, gesturing towards the ascension, but also enclosing him from physical contact. The artist has caught both Mary and Jesus in arrested motion. She walks towards him. He seems to fly upwards. What anchors him? It, inter- it occurs to me that he is anchored by love. This is the substance and the weight of the new creation. In the build-up to this encounter, Mary Magdalene does not see this. She has seen the evidence that Jesus is risen, but not felt the joy that this might have prompted. The fact of the resurrection is cold and empty without the risen Lord being right there. I have to confess that I have often preferred "Good Friday to Easter Day. Not so long ago, I was at a repeat performance of um, uh, the Lloyd Webber um, uh, musical, um, in which Jesus, the thing finishes with Jesus on the cross, the end. Jesus Christ superstar. And the person, as the, as the uh, curtain came down, the lady next to me leant across and said, you'd think they'd have thought of a happy ending, wouldn't you? Well, some of us don't like happy endings. Friends tell me that I'm a, an acute, if smiling, pessimist. As a would-be perfectionist, I often feel that... I never get beyond the dress rehearsal. It is not difficult to understand that some people never break free of the first fierceness of the wounds of bereavement or separation. I have known women in their 90s grieving the loss of a baby from over 70 years before. Mary represents that powerful pull of death which is the undertow for us even in these days of Easter. She's felt somehow outside the revelation of what had happened there. I don't know about you but I have occasionally felt that I have been living outside myself. I think the Johannine contrast between flesh and spirit points to this. Human sin and alienation puts us outside real life and what it might mean to abide in the fullness of life which Christ came to bring to us. Mary is surprised to meet angels rather than a corpse and she turns away. And the Greek phrase used, eis ta opizo, literally turning backwards, is used about those who rejected Jesus as the bread of life in John 6. Then Jesus does appear and she still doesn't recognise him and the sculpture raises the question we would all love to ask what was so different about Jesus' body that people knew him well didn't recognise him? The experience of non-recognition is not in itself so foreign. We've all met people we know in the wrong context and failed to acknowledge them. The archdeacon in running attire for his marathon training, or the supermarket cashier you always talk to and then see in the queue for the cinema. It's also not uncommon for the recently bereaved to think that they've seen their deceased loved one either in the room or going round the nearest corner. None of these scenarios, though, quite seems to fit. Jesus has only been away three days, and Mary has gone to find him in the place where he should have been. The point about Easter and living Easter is coping with the fact that the resurrection changes everything, changes the way in which everything is seen. It's even conceivable that it makes us visible to God in a new way. The proper preface for Easter (laughs) says, it is indeed right our duty and our joy always and everywhere to give you thanks, etc., etc. For by the mystery of his passion, Jesus Christ, your risen Son, has conquered the powers of death and hell and restored in men and women the image of your glory. Think what it must be like for Mary Magdalene to have been the first redeemed human being whom the risen Jesus sees think what it might be for you and for me to be that redeemed person whom in, in this Easter tide Jesus sees and in some way we feel seen for the first time truly as we are and as Jesus looks on Mary there must be something of the wonder of the first creation. And it's not surprising that poets and iconographers have played with the idea that Christ's cross and Adam's tree stood in one place. Certainly John Donne writes about that in his hymn To God, My God, In My Sickness. And then there is this sonnet for Easter dawn by one of the priests in my diocese, Malcolm Gite as a meditation on the meeting which this sculpture describes. He blesses every love which weeps and grieves, and now he blesses hers who stood and wept, and would not be consoled, or leave her love's last touching place, but watched as low light crept up from the east. A sound behind her stirs a scatter of bright birdsong through the air. She turns, but cannot focus through her tears or recognise the gardener standing there. She hardly hears his gentle question, Why? Why are you weeping? Or sees the play of light that brightens as she chokes out her reply. They took my love away, my day is night. And then she hears her name. She hears love say the word that turns her night and ours today. Following Mary Magdalene as our representative, living the re- resurrection means that the consequence of being sane and named by the risen Christ is that we are invited to see what the beckoning to be a new creation might mean. The world is turned the right way up because a woman can be a witness just like a man and has the freedom just like a man not to see. Some say that Mary Magdalene is the representative of the unseeing people of Israel waiting to catch up to the recognition of the Christ as the long expected Messiah. She certainly represents you and me in our modern living, catching up in our imagination and in the music of our praise, in our coming to grips with the possibility of new life. Whatever living the resurrection might mean for you and for me, It's about every bit of you and me. There is no life now without resurrection as its spring. The transfiguring power of love is at work in us. We may not feel it because of our weakness and our distraction, but we have been given treasure, treasure in clay jars, and we may be afflicted and perplexed, persecuted but not forsaken, Struck down but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be made visible in our bodies. And so we turn to the second image of Piero della Francesca, the resurrection of Jesus standing on the tomb above the sleeping... (laughs) Guards. <laughs> Piero painted this resurrection scene for the council hall of the Borgo di San, San Sepolcro in the province of, of Arezzo. The town seems to have taken its name from the relics brought back from the Holy Land, San Sepolcro, the Holy Sepulchre, and early chroniclers referred to it as the New Jerusalem. Was this in the artist's mind? When he painted Christ emerging from the tomb. Certainly, during World War II, a British artillery officer called Tony Clark defied orders to bomb San because he had read Aldous Huxley's essay, The Best Picture, and could not imagine destroying something so important. There are several things to note about this scene. The tomb itself is a classical sarcophagus alluding to antiquity and to a pre-Christian past. And the emerging figure is entirely unlike the emaciated body depicted by David Wynne. This Christ is muscular and athletic. His posture and the drape of his robe have an imperial character. There is something almost ludicrous about placing this majestic Christ in relation to the rest of the picture. Behind him this rustic hillside scene perhaps drawing upon the local landscape. The sleeping guards in the foreground are in the clothing of the artist's period, sleeping through the final conquest of death. And we might feel that were they to wake up they would join the many who did not recognise the risen Jesus because of the limitations of their own expectations he turns up in the wrong place, in the wrong shape. The severely injured corpse they had been set to watch is only faintly alluded to in the small scar on Jesus' right hand side. Otherwise, he is Christ in majesty, at the same time statuesque and poised for action, carrying his banner of victory. And Although his crown may be made of thorns, it's made to look like a golden coronet. Here is the Christian world emerging from the past, a picture of mobility and strength which Huxley, unsurprisingly, has very little to do, says has very little to do with any Christian theme. Huxley, writing his essay in 1925, said this was the best picture ever painted. It's the best picture in the world because of, in his view, of what it has to say about the human spirit. However, I am intrigued and inspired by the representation of that perfect union of the abiding and beautiful human character of the resurrection with the divine vindication and power of the God who glorifies the beauty revealed on the cross and pours the grace into all creation from that place. What we celebrate in these days of Easter is that there is no place or situation where the risen Christ does not have access. Many of you may be old enough to remember the Alan Bennett sermon. There is always a little bit in the corner of the sardine tin that you can't get out. Is there a little bit in the corner of your life? I know there is in mine. Well, in Psalm 139, we meet the inescapable God Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light around me becomes night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light to you. The risen Christ who bursts from the tomb is the one who was first descended to the depths before he ascends on high. The prologue of St. John's Gospel is wholly fulfilled. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not overcome it. Living in a post-Christendom culture, such an image of Christ as the noblest expression of the classical ideal can appear passe and even arrogant. Nevertheless, we are reminded that the inescapable God is a source of all creativity and liberty of thought and imagination. The risen Christ reigns in the architecture of all of our learning and reflection. As those living Easter, we are light-bearers and those who are called to open up spaces with and for others. And we must not lose our courage, particularly in this capital city To promote and live the new creation in the abundance of our ideas and hopes which we desire to bring to bear on the shaping of the city. What starts here in London has the opportunity to inform the world. The world may sleep, but Christ still emerges unexpectedly over our barricades to bring about the profound revolution of the kingdom bearing the banner of love. And the apparently ludicrous revelation of Christ in this local landscape for Piero della Francesca is no accident. It reminds us in Eastertide of the power and responsibility given to us to be looking for and building Easter environments for people. I spent the afternoon with a property developer looking at how we might turn housing developments into communities where people live as well as sleep. Creating places where people thrive in community rather than hunch in dormitories. And so we move to the Stanley Spencer, the resurrection with the raising of Jairus' daughter. resurrection has been a theme of Spencer's painting following on from the First World War. Here he, stri- he develops the resurrection theme during the Second World War and afterwards when he was working as a war artist at Port Stanley near Glasgow. One day he walked up a hill where there was a cemetery and he recorded that it felt to him like the hill of Zion and he began to work on a series of large panels using local people, shipyard workers and their families, as his inspiration. And out of this came eight very large canvases, three of them now make up the triptych in Southampton of the resurrection with the raising of Jira's daughter, which was completed about 1947. The reproduction I've given you sadly fails to convey the detail and animation of this painting. In the central panel is a scene in Jairus' house, an ordinary small, unpotential brick building of the period. Through the window, we see the little girl sitting up on a bed. Jesus stands at the foot of the bed, pointing to heaven. Other bystanders, overcome with emotion, bury their faces in their hands. Outside the doorway of the house, in the left-hand panel, the wonder that has just occurred is linked to a scene of wild rejoicing and reunion of women emerging onto the pavement from the house. Perhaps they've come out to report the child's healing. Over one of the external doors is a small union jack, maybe rather frivolous, but a rather quirky and domestic reminder of the flag of victory in the hands of the Piero Christ. And the pavement itself is erupting as people emerge from under the slabs. These are the dead being raised, helped out by each other and by the living. What do we make of Jesus' finger pointing upwards? Spencer was interested in heaven and his paintings of resurrection scenes suggest that he thought of it as a place of recreation where people were themselves made new In this life, living eternal life, living Easter right now, appropriating the future of eternal life and its energy in our lives today. Lives potentially filled with happiness no matter what we have been through in the past. Jesus is suggesting that heaven is all around and that the animated goings on outside are not a distraction but a breaking in of heaven on earth. The Lucan account of the miracle of the raising of Jairus' daughter is set in an interesting sequence of events. Jesus has gone to Samaria with some of his disciples and also some women, including one whom he had healed of demonic possession. He goes on to encounter the Gerasene demoniac and then he's summoned urgently to the house of Jairus on the way healing another social outcast, the woman with the haemorrhage. By the time he gets to Jairus' house, there is ample evidence of his power over sickness in all its forms. Now he is challenged to raise the dead in front of mourners and bystanders. And he does so focusing on the faith of the parents of the child. In this wild imagery of Spencer, we're helped to imagine the authentic joy of first hand experience of the conveying of the news of this new life lived in Easter. This chimes very closely with Rowan Williams' thesis that the resurrection is first an experience of healing and forgiveness, which creates new patterns of life together and so reveals a fresh understanding of a social God, not tied to God's physical presence with us in this or any time but to the identity of a community living in the community, in the power of God's Spirit. And so we turn to the final picture in your collection, The Christus Rex by Peter Eugene Ball, which hangs above the pulpit in Ely Cathedral. It was a millennium commission. It is mounted on a pillar behind the pulpit and has the extraordinary effect of hovering over the preacher. And with their elongated faces and huge eyes, Boar's characteristic gilded driftwood figures are not unlike Romanesque depictions of Christ in Majesty. Often these figures have the index finger and middle finger raised, as in the Ely uh, Christus Rex, and one might conclude quickly that this was a gesture of blessing. There is another possibility, however. In the system of formal hand gestures that were part of classical rhetoric, this can be an instruction to keep silent. There is good reason for this in depictions of Christ. When he appears in judgment, he is the one who speaks and others must be quiet. If you see him with the evangelists, their scrolls are rolled up and their books are closed there is no further call for them to talk about Jesus because he is risen and his word is eternal. And with that in mind it is difficult to stand under that Christus Rex in the pulpit in Ely. This particular image of Christ may be a judge but the facial expression suggests that he is benign. This is a God whose judgment is to have mercy who came that we might have life in abundance whatever the cost to him. Jean Vanier was recently asked whether he had any further reflection on his study of St. John's Gospel. He observed that the true majesty of Christ is revealed when he established the future community of the Gospel in the person of his friend and his mother at what was for him the point of his greatest humiliation and disability. This is his lived parable of judgement on Boko Haram and all our blasphemies of violence and greed and the seeking of power. Living the resurrection is about inhabiting that space, that space of encounter where we are called in community into community by him. And this is an invitation into joy a picture you haven't got in front of you uh, but you might find on your smartphone is the picture of Donatello's sculpture and carving of Mary Magdalene as an old woman this was paint this was uh, produced in 1453 when Donatello was already an old man He was was producing this study, along with studies of John the Baptist, in order to display what it might be to continue to live into old age with with vigour and purpose and hope. It is not a statue of her presented in the usual Renaissance way as a courtesan, She stood in the Duomo in Florence as an old woman shaped by penitence and reparation. She still bears the marks of the one freed from terrible mental anguish. You can hardly tell where her wild hair ends and her rags begin, but she is on the front foot. She is framed as a witness to Easter faith Mary Magdalene discovered that she need no longer be defined as a person by her sins or by other people's caricatures of her as a person freed by Jesus from turmoil and mental anguish. She has accepted the restoration of the inner beauty that is the birthright of the sons and daughters of God. When this statue went for restoration some years ago the restorers discover that Donatello had threaded her hair with gold leaf. Canon Oakley and I are unlikely to be so bedecked. (laughs) But the principle is to be lived. A good Easter is life lived shot through with grace and glory. Hoping for that transfiguring by love which makes us the healed and forgiven community of the resurrection.
0: Thank you very much indeed. And I'm sitting in front of the screen and just in case any of you think I'm sort of catching up with dark. Uh, I promise you I'm not, Uh, I'm here now poised to receive your questions on anything um, that's uh, prompted by what you've just heard, so please do not feel embarrassed or ashamed uh, to write down your question to hold it up and it will be collected and fed through uh, here. Can I just begin by, Mm. I I was struck by the idea of Easter environments. Yes. and i was thinking as you spoke about the the icon that you can sometimes see of of jesus standing on a rather precarious looking bridge reaching out to adam and to eve and the padlocks of hell are all mm-hmm. shattered around and uh, and these two of course had been blaming one another uh, not long ago Um, no, no, she told me to eat it, and all that stuff, blaming one another. And and he, in this resurrection bridge scene, Mm. is reintroducing them to one another, almost bringing their hands back. And I was wondering whether an Easter environment, when Mm. it comes to, say, housing, is about the business of trying to reintroduce human beings to one another in a different light and I just wondered if you could tell us what you, what you meant by an Easter environment. I think that idea of reintroduction
1: or introduction for the first time uh, is really acute because yeah. um, certainly my experience living and ministering in an area where perhaps the, beyond London the largest number of new communities is proposed. Um, I was very conscious recently of somebody saying to me who'd lived in this house for 30 years saying, I think I'm going to join this village now. And what he meant was that he'd retired and was going to inhabit, as I think I said, inhabit the space and live where he slept. And he did need to be introduced to people Mm -hmm. even after all that time uh, in the Christian community and so on and more widely. And I think there is this huge danger of, as you say, living in alienated spaces and living a life that's so privatised and so bulwarked against the challenge of other people that there is you, you, you introduced me kindly talking about the whole point of transformation how people are given the opportunity for transformation because it's not something that happens on your own no, and I think by Easter, environments, creating spaces where, figuratively at least, people are coming up um, through the through the concrete, being ra- pulled out by others into into new community with one another. Mm. And and um, you know I, I don't often have meetings with property developers, uh, and certainly not ones where they agree with me. <laughs> mm, yeah. And he was—he really captured this, was mm. captured by this.
0: Because it seems to me that a resurrection faith is going to be a political faith. Mm. Because as soon as in the scriptures, the followers of Jesus begin to say, after the resurrection, Jesus is Lord. Well, that's yes, you exactly are right. saying, and Caesar isn't. That's right. And that's a political statement. It is. And then the apostles go out, and they get their uh, their lives ended. In this resurrection faith, so this is political stuff. It's political, and it's certainly it is
1: dangerous. Yeah, and, and there's no getting away from its being dangerous. I think that you know even bishops, you know, writing a pastoral letter uh, to the churches, um, brought forth a reaction out of proportion to the rather gentle way in which it was expressed, um, even just by saying that we should try to be good neighbours. Mm -hmm. But it's a political statement Mm -hmm. to be somebody's neighbour and believing in the transfiguration of those whom we find it difficult to comprehend. Um, I was... um, Before we came in, we were talking about a religious community where um, somebody was saying, well, it's great that God chose me for this community. Why didn't he bother to consult me about the other beggars? Mm. And even in Christian community, mm. maybe even a distilled way in Christian community, there's the danger of embracing the other and actually
0: being seen in the way that finally Mary Magdalene saw Jesus. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Questions have started to come in. Thank you. Keep them coming. Um, first of all, why do you think we keep Lent so much more faithfully than Easter? Um, well, I tried
1: to address that in my own situation, that, that you know, in some ways preferring Lent. I think that... Um, I remember uh, a former bishop, Anglican bishop in Mozambique, Denis Singulani, um, came to preach at Westcott House uh, when I was there, and he said, it stuck with me over you know, more than 30 years now, he said, the problem about us Christians is that we, we fail to believe that God is not withholding forgiveness. It's that we don't want to be forgiven. Mm-hmm. We're comfortable with the spiritual arthritis of our sins. And I think that one of the things about Easter, and again it's dangerous, is this readiness to move from the tomb, from, in a sense, the comfortable... Um, stench of death and, and despair and loss and to look into the garden and see the possibility of life which might mean dramatic change for us and I'm very privileged to meet people who feel believe that they've been called to ordination and again and again finding people who've been surprised by an invitation into life they had not predicted Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that we live that out in the church that we um, that we sometimes we're so fearful uh, in the church so often and forget that Jesus has said to us fear not I have overcome the world Mm -hmm. that's the bursting from the tomb Mm -hmm. that we live and so it's um, uh, I would hope that we could um, with wisdom move into that, move out of our places of safety and try new life
0: I remember one of the I hear a lot of sermons of course nowadays do, sure I do. do, too many and um, uh, the one I really remember uh, here was on the feast of John the Baptist and the preacher got up and looked at the congregation and said, could you all please just get up and change seats? And you can imagine uh, the resentment that yes, was uh, <laughs> fired at him through a lot of disgruntled-looking Anglican faces. Uh, but gradually, you know, some bold person moved and, mm. and another, and it sort of caught on. And after a good sort of three or four minutes, uh, people resettled and then the preacher just said you know if it's taken you so long just to change seats imagine what it's like to try and change your life hmm. with the with the idea of John the Baptist's call to, hmm. to 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 a U-turn in your life and i just wonder whether you know we we give voice to the liberty of the children of god to fresh life to you know George Herbert's phrase of Mm. how could my shriveled heart recovered greenness Mm. but but then we don't seem to be able to to celebrate it uh, and to take it forward Uh, and I'm a bit perplexed by this that should be uh, defining us shouldn't it yes I suppose it's this um I
1: think it's what uh Michael Stancliffe describes as the grim groove of moral duty.
0: Ah, right. Okay, the grim groove. The grim groove of of moral moral duty. Duty. There's a
1: marvellous sermon. uh, I recommend uh, Michael Stancliffe, who was Dean of Winchester, was a marvellous preacher. And there's an Easter sermon of his, in which he says, you know, that the that we're so tied down by this, this this burden of the grim groove of moral duty, when we should be joining in the dance of the resurrection with mm-hmm. clodhopping enthusiasm mm-hmm. and um, a lot of us you know are naturally wallflowers <laughs> in this dance but um, you know Jesus doesn't you know everyone thought you know they all thought that he was gone and he, he's
0: dancingly alive forever let's join in the dance how though Um, says a person here how can we experience Easter if we are grieving and and, uh, if I may there's another question just come in that's attached to it what does a good Easter look like to refugees on Mm. a leaking boat Mm. travelling from North Africa to Italy Mm.
1: well I can't speak for what it is for them it would be terrible for me to try and be in their shoes I wouldn't claim to be um, I think when I have been in places like the Sudan which have been in more or less continuous violence and disruption for more than 50 years um, I've encountered extraordinary resurrection faith there because um, with people having a palpable sense of Jesus being with them um crucified and ascended and risen all at once. And rather like those big hands in that wind sculpture. A sense of being held by those hands. And um, um, my, going through a babber even myself at the moment, and um And I, I've got lots of questions, but um, there's a, I came across a lovely tile that I put a hot mug on, and it said, Alleluia, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, that I think that the, the rabbis in Auschwitz put God on trial. And they found God guilty. And then there was a shocked pause... And the rabbi said, "The chief rabbi said, "Let us pray. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's something about the inescapable God um, who holds us and oh, well I just believe that you know in the, even in the figurative drowning of his going into, that, into the Jordan to be baptized, that all the chaos of that sea of that dreadful." scene in the Med that's just one of so many scenes um, that the crucified and risen Jesus is in the midst of that roiling fear and horror Um, but it has to be the crucified God who's risen that's worth believing in in that setting it's the Jesus on the cross that is most humiliated, as Jean Vanier says, at his most humiliated and his most disabled, mm. who moves out of himself even then and says, This is your son, this is your mother.
0: Because mm. I, I think we're so used to hearing Almighty God, all powerful God, but forget that. If, if you are love you are vulnerable and and you understand grief because it can be no other way and this is you know, this is the you know this is
1: the son of God who um, weeps um, over his his friend Lazarus um, you know that this wasn't some kind of fix this is the son of God sobbing Mm -hmm. for his friend
0: Mm. yes again I remember I remember three sermons in this place and one was by the the, uh, dean two deans ago who was very near his own death and he preached up there on on, on Dunlon Thomas though lovers be lost love shall not and death shall have no dominion and of course he was Welsh and I've never forgotten the way he He used the resonance of this line um, so powerfully, uh, to remind, though lovers be lost, love shall not. Mm. Uh, And uh, he he died not too long afterwards. It's uh, very poignant every Easter, I remember him. Uh, I must carry on, there are more um, questions coming in. How do you have a good Easter when you only see the fact of the resurrection, not the faith of the joy?
1: Um, I remember a priest uh, whom we both know very well, I went at a rather dry time to speak to him and he said, well don't worry, he said, you go in the pulpit and preach the faith of the church you know, and that um, and we'll say the creed for you mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. so the sense in which um, part of it is how we are held by others when we're living with the fact more than we're living with the joy. Um, In Ruth Burroughs, one of Ruth Burroughs' books about prayer, she refers to one of her sisters in this carmel, in this very enclosed contemplative community, who had had no spiritual consolation in 25 years of religious life. And Ruth Burroughs says, what on earth, why are you still here? And she said, well, I made a promise. And there's something about the palpable absence of God which paradoxically makes him so real to me. And so I think that there are... But actually knowing the fact is... Well, I think you know, that the opposite, I mean, people so often think that doubt or clinging on to f- faith somehow is the opposite of real faith. And we get this terrible thing of, um, of uh, Christians making other Christians feel like they're second-class citizens.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: When I was a curate, we had a church warden who, uh, we, I was reading a Bible study and the, one of the church wardens was there and a, a woman was there who... Had lost two husbands, had two young children living in a tower block, no money, and she said, "Sometimes I get angry with God." And this church warden said, oh, "Well, I'm never angry with God, but I'm such a better Christian than you." Hmm. And well, we all know who was the. <laughs> As
0: they say, instantly proving he isn't.
1: But I, no. and I think that there is something about um, the opposite of faith is not doubt or. Um, you know, that it's despair. Mm-hmm. And, and I think, you know, when the, uh, you know, in the Old Testament, thinking about the, the echo of the voice, mm. you know, that the, that the voice of God seemed to have gone far away, but the people faithfully hung on to the echo of the voice. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um,
0: you talked about catching up, and that's an element, isn't it, of the resurrection narratives. Is. We're trying to catch up with um, with with Christ. I was I was thinking, as you said that about that lovely line in R. S. Thomas: "Such a fast God, always before us and yes. leaving as we
1: arrive." Well, I think there are two things to say. First of all, I think that the, on the the that Easter gospel in Mark. Yes. You know, there's no people are no, not given the consolation of a resurrection experience of Jesus. No. They're told in faith to go to Jerusalem, go to Galilee, yeah. before there's any chance of seeing him. Yes. And so there's something about the starkness of being called mm-hmm. to Easter faith, even before there's any revelation or the joy of seeing seeing him. Mm-hmm. There's also the wonderful. Uh, I think it's just wonderful that um, one of the best. Visual representations of that enigmatic, speedy Christ is in um, is in Pasolini's Gospel according to Matthew, mm. and it's a um, you know it's a gay anarchist um, atheist mm-hmm. who gives us this impassioned, speedy, mm. speedy
0: Jesus. Mm. There's a question here about preaching. Um, the resurrection um, obviously I would imagine for somebody who, who has to but I think I, I want to tie it into the fact that you've just mentioned Mark's gospel it strikes me of course uh, that, that the first reference that we have the earliest reference we have to the resurrection is from Paul who, who talks about some um, vision and, and experience of, of the presence of Jesus then a little bit later we have mark's narrative which is only eight verses long and you think well if the resurrection's so important after all those chapters you've got eight verses there's no appearance of jesus no no uh, and they're all sort of frightened at the end of it um matthew uh, gives 20 verses <laughs> um Luke has 53 verses and John has 56 verses, two chapters. So it's getting longer and there's more narrative, but it's still relatively a small part of the gospel whole. And I wonder whether it is because these things are difficult to talk about, to express the wonder, the joy. And so is it difficult for a Christian who's trying to communicate resurrection faith? Mm. Is it easier to stick to Lent and Good Friday? Um, Well, if you take Mark's Gospel
1: itself, Mm. you could say that um, what Mark's really interested in is saying, yes, he does all these wonders. He's this extraordinary healer. The powers of creation are subject to his command. Mm. But don't be distracted by these things. It's a very speedy Gospel. You're drawn through this Gospel Mm. really quite fast past the healings and, the, and what matters is what matters to Mark is the calling to be a disciple who believes the predictions of Jesus' passion both bits um, the, because the disciples won't hear that he will suffer and die they also don't hear that on the third day he's going to rise from the dead. And again and again, particularly in chapters 8, 9, and 10 in Mark, you get that all the you know, and the predictions of the Passion follow some failure on the part of the disciples mm-hmm. to believe what the cost is going to be and what the joy is going to be. And it's the contrast with the disciples and blind Bartimaeus, where Bartimaeus... Gets his sight back in time to witness the crucifixion mm-hmm. so obviously the cross is where you see who Jesus is for Mark, but I think that the the thing about living Lent and Easter is the extent to which Good Friday and Easter Day are one event you don 't separate the crucifixion from the resurrection in a sense it 's one event. Mm complete in itself of our redemption mm. um, as I say anything other than, than a crucified saviour won't do mm-hmm. but as Paul says if that resurrection is, in, in, you know, is not true then all this is in vain
0: it's interesting because we were just talking about reintroducing people to one another is, is part of resurrection faith and, and of course that's exactly what Jesus does on the cross in John Yes, it is. is. He he introduces John to his mother and asks them to see one another. Yeah, and it's about that seeing, isn't it? Yeah, mm. yeah. I'm also struck in John's gospel, of course. That by the time John's Gospel's written, Jesus is appearing in their old familiar places. So in the upper room, on a beach, by in Peter's case by a fire, and it's almost say, him saying, you know. Um, this is where we first were. I called you here, do you remember? Mm. This is where we ate and, and slept together and, and, and warmed ourselves and ate uh, and, I'm, and then you deserted me. But you know, I'm still, I'm still here with you and, and therefore it's not your faithfulness that, that Easter is a celebration of. It's mine. Relax. I'm still here with you. And I, I sometimes wonder whether we we find it difficult to surrender our obsession that it's our spirituality, it's our prayer, it's our this, it's our that, actually say actually resurrection is about God celebrating us and being faithful to us.
1: When you think about that encounter in, in John mm. between Jesus and Peter and Peter on Simon Peter on the beach. Mm. Um, it's interesting that Jesus calls him Simon, son of John. Mm-hmm. It's going back to his his first name, not the name he's given, but his own name. Mm-hmm. And I think that's profoundly important about how he is recreated mm. from the beginning again. But, and although I know that some, some commentators disagree about this, but it, you know you, uh, the Greek... Um, can be interpreted more than one way but when Jesus says Simon son of John do you love me it's Simon do you love me with all your heart and again he says and and someone goes no you know you know I love you and then Jesus says do you love me with your whole heart oh you know I love you love you as a friend And the third time Jesus says Simon, son of John do you love me like a friend? And the sense in which uh, he's recreated by the continuing humility of the risen Christ in if that's where Simon needs to be to be recreated then that's the language that Jesus will go to. I see. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that He's invited to to love Jesus uh, in the way that Jesus loves him, mm-hmm. but it doesn't matter that he can't, mm-hmm. because Jesus meets him in that space and recreates him nonetheless.
0: One of the questions that's come up over this series is, is I think, a lot of desire in Christians to to be able to celebrate our faith in a more homely way, I mean literally in the home. And many other faiths do this perhaps a little bit more celebratory than we're able to. Um, And there's a question here, do you have some practical suggestions on how we might keep Easter, perhaps 50 days of taking some celebratory act on instead of giving things up, you know, what are you going to celebrate today? But also about how can we keep it um, uh, practically,
1: uh, one of the th- one of the things, the motifs we have in the diocese of Ely, which I just blatantly stole from Bishop Jack Nichols, is that we need to live life a life of prayer and parties, <laughs> mm. and um, and that can be as domesticated as we want it to be. But one of the important things I think it's a marvellous idea to to have to take on a sort of Eastertide um, program for joy mm-hmm. and hospitality because if you think about all those meals that Jesus ate in other people's homes in which he encountered people usually on the edge whom he assured lived in his peace and forgiveness. And I think if there are opportunities for us to open our homes um, when well, I live in a very big house and uh, <laughs> and uh, and i justify it by filling it with people a lot of the time for them to i know some women clergy meeting in my meeting in my house today, and I had the point of going to, to to greet them and saying that my my home was theirs for today, and if we could do something radical like that in Eastertide um, with wisdom because I mean we could open the door to the whole world and um, friends of mine went away for the weekend recently and left their son in the house. And the house party that was going to be for was unfortunately displayed on Facebook and became 44. So we need to have wisdom about this. Mm-hmm. But I think that um, I think I will go away and think about you know, just as one makes recommendations for Lent, um, about spiritual disciplines. I think it would be really good, I think I'm gonna go away and think of a, at least some spiritual disciplines for Easter time for myself.
0: Mm. Well, uh, I mean, medieval Christians were more imaginative in many ways and, than we are, I think, particularly in liturgies. And of course, many of you here will know about Rhesus Pascalis, which was um, one way that uh, we know in, in parts of Southern Germany, particularly, uh, the preacher would get up on Easter day and would almost become a bit like Frankie Howard uh, and start telling rather ooh Mrs. jokes, rather naughty, um, to get the congregation laughing. Uh, and it's not always easy. Uh, so, you know, he w- w- was a bit of a sort of carry-on vicar routine. Uh, because well, because to laugh you. was. Well, yes, a bit, me, a bit like me, really. <laughs> But it was the only way to truly celebrate resurrection was to dare to laugh, even if you're grieving. Mm. Because laughter was a, a promise of redemption. And Easter Day was celebrating the fact that that promise was being kept. And so laugh, mm. even if you're crying. Yes. And, and that sort of imaginative, playful spirit in liturgy amongst Christians ain't always there, is it? No.
1: <laughs> you know, it's when um, I know as a priest certainly there's a, there's a kind of funeral you long for where um, regardless of the age of the person there is a real joy mm. both in handing this person to God but also in the joyful remembrance of the person. And I can think of the funeral last summer of John Hughes, oh, yes. who was the Dean of Jesus College in, in Cambridge, and um, a theologian, a priest of enormous gifts and, and a very mischievous humour. Mm. And, um, and I had to preside at his funeral, and I was dreading this. And although there were moments in it which were appalling... Really appalling. It was the most wonderful occasion, paradoxically, in which his gap toothed smile was in our hearts. There was, there was, there really was that that's laughter through the tears. Mm. And I think of my own experience of bereavement that um, the most important thing and this is, I suppose, connects with being a witness about Jesus, is that the worst possible thing that we can experience when we're grieving is that other people want to shut down the conversation about the person who has died. Mm-hmm. And that could be the worst, most alienating thing for the most bereaved is nobody wants to talk about them anymore, the person who's died. And there are so many forces at work in, in our society that really don't want us to talk about Jesus. Mm-hmm. It's too vulgar, you know. Mm. Christianity ought to have died in Politoimbi language, it's just all too vulgar to carry on. Mm. But actually being a witness is saying we're not going to stop talking about and acting out the extraordinary reality of God.
0: Mm. Because if resurrection's about anything it's about Confirming that our faith is contagious. Yeah, and that um, exactly so, exactly so. The first thing that happens is apostles are
1: made. Yes, and, and what happens is that they go, you know, they go dancing off to all the known world, hmm. putting themselves in the danger that they were so cross that Jesus put himself in. Yeah. yeah. And I suppose the most important thing is that they were full of fear. Those two people on that road to Emmaus who, met, who were met by the risen Jesus who made, him, who made them understand the scriptures and broke bread with them, mm-hmm. what happened was their response to that was to go back to the place of danger yep. and bring the news.
0: Yep. A, a question here. You spoke about fear and bewilderment not being the opposite of faith. What practical ways have you found to help you move into an open, comfortable resurrection space when we know we do not have all the answers? Um,
1: uh, I'm a, in Myers-Briggs terms, If people are familiar with all of that, I'm an acute introvert. Um, so that my natural default mode is under threat or in fear to withdraw.
0: Gosh, you must enjoy bishops' meetings. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, um, well, it's amazing how you can withdraw even when you're in a meeting, isn't <laughs> mm-hmm. it? Mm-hmm. The lights are on, but there's nobody in. Mm. Um, but actually, that there's, I think that the... Where I have gained the most is about um, not doing that, and um, and seeking to move outward into community. I think that the this is what the point I was making that Rowan Williams makes in his 1980. I think it's 1982. It seems you know, it's only yesterday, but he wrote a book on the Resurrection in 1982. In which he's saying the most impo- the thesis is that the most important thing about the resurrection is finding healing and forgiveness yes. with others, yes, and that um, we don't easily do that on our own, yeah. and that's why I think that there's a challenge to us if we are an Easter environment as the church. Um, that very you know that the Department of Health sponsors some research which said came very close to saying that prayer was really good for people and particularly good for people living in anguish, um, people living with um, mental anguish of any kind, mm. and that prayer was not just a way of was not good just on its, in itself it was prayer with other people mm. Mm. and finding identity um, with others you know i don 't know about I, I don't know about you, but I get lots of letters. <coughs> um, must be my age, but I get lots of letters addressed to to whom it may concern. Um, quite often, letters off- offering me um, middle-aged supports. <laughs> um, right. And um, and that, you, know, you get these letters, and you throw them away. And just occasionally, you get a letter that says, Beloved. Now, of course, as a bishop, I get the equivalent of those green ink letters, mm-hmm. where if, I'm, if somebody says, My Lord, I'm in for a telling off. Mm. But that, with that space from the To Whom It May Concern, to the letter Beloved, and I think that... Um, a life of a life of prayer, sustained in community, I think creates a more likely possibility of that kind of intimacy uh, with God.
0: Um, yeah, I love the fact we have an introvert bishop speaking of resurrection and last time we had a very extrovert bishop talking about holy week Uh, i think that's how it should be um a question here in exposing oneself to grief as we've talked about from loving and losing how does one refresh and move on rather than become dry and prematurely dead
1: think that the um, that's I mean I think the experience of the disciples in the upper room before Jesus appears is um, a death before death and um, and I know that's um, and we can easily move to a sort of quick answer. Oh, well, then Jesus appears and says, peace be with you, and everything's fine. Mm. I don't think that's... That's not what I would want you to say. I think that... Um, one of the things is be realistic about our griefs. You know, there's so many people wanting to get us, get, get us over something long before we're ready. Mm. And I think it's about, they say, at least two years before over the preliminary... Um, features of a very um, deep bereavement Um, but I think there was something about um, well it's like prayer itself Um, you know Michael Ramsey said was asked how long he prayed for every day and he said um, "Oh, um, five minutes uh, five minutes But it takes me an hour to get there. Mm. And I promise to turn up. I don't promise that anything will happen. (laughs) Mm. That's God's business. Mm. I think maybe that in grief, maybe the only thing one, there's a sort of discipline about putting oneself in the way of life. Mm -hmm. Um, Maybe that's all that one can do. even if it looks like you're, you, know, you feel separate and somehow aside from life, that at least to put yourself in the way of it. Um, and that uh, you talked about you know, our Easter faith being contagious, just putting ourselves in
0: the way of life that might, that might catch us. Uh, and also the, the, the other thing that comes through, isn't it, is that Easter faith is courageous. And we tend to think of heroics, you know, going off like Paul in a, in a boat and shipwrecked and all that. But actually, for, for many people, the greatest act of courage of the day is getting out of bed. Yes, and I, I knew I had a friend, she was a priest, and she had <clears throat>
1: a severe personality disorder. Yeah. And um, she sustained full time ministry as a priest. I mean, she sadly died of something else um, a while ago. But. There was no courage like that, it was exactly as you say. Mm. There was that, and I said, "How do you do it?" She said, "Well, rather like that nun in the Carmel, I promised, mm-hmm. and but nobody—hardly well, anybody—knew the courage that it took her to get out of bed every day and get washed and and face the world." Yeah. I think we just need to be, you know, mark our admiration for the people who do.
0: I I always remember Donald Winnicott, the the psychologist who worked a lot with children Mm. always used to say that his one hope was he would be alive when he died. Yes. Uh, And and that it was that aspiration that kept his work and his relationships uh, going. May I be alive when I die. Yes. Um, There's one times are going on yeah. i'm afraid there is one question here which i think we've been skirting round okay, so here we go uh, save the d- difficult to the last what do you think really happened that morning did he really rise or is it just a metaphor hmm.
1: i think it's really interesting that um <laughs> as far as i know um nobody in uh, well, I, uh, nobody has, uh, in most of the art I've seen, tried to depict the resurrection itself. Yeah. The scripture doesn't seek to describe what, what God does with God mm-hmm. in that space. Um, so, but do I believe that there is a real body um, I think I do I think that the, the invitation I think it's because I find it very, very difficult because of the incarnation not to believe in a physical mm-hmm. reality mm-hmm. of God in Jesus and and I think that that for me that physicality is profoundly important in the resurrection If if you're allowed to have a favourite doctrine um, then I think for me it would be the ascension and the idea of the risen glorified body of Jesus with those scars with the ugliness of that is takes my humanity into heaven and I think that's that needs, for me, needs to be a more physical reality than something physical. You know, Jesus, in, I think it's in Luke, Jesus, you know, says, you know, or the Luke says that they, they wonder if they were seeing a ghost. Yeah. And I don't know, I've not done, not, not done much exploration about ghosts, but I think experts on the paranormal say that mostly ghostly activity is like a loop of some traumatic experience in the past which has no consciousness of its bearing on the present. Mm. And I don't think a God who's a ghost would have any bearing on my life.
0: Mm -hmm. And uh, I think it's Marcus Borg who says that when you read the resurrection uh, narratives, no matter where you come down on physical empty tombs and all that uh, debate, uh, you are always dealing with historical memory in metaphorical narrative. You are, absolutely. So maybe sometimes the questions need to be reframed a bit. Because yes,
1: and I think that David Jenkins, who was yeah. the bishop who ordained me, got into fr- terrible trouble for allegedly saying there's some conjuring trip with bones. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it was the then Dean of Durham uh, very different from from David who wrote in the Times, if you stand at the altar with this man on Easter morning, presiding at the Eucharist on Easter day, you have no doubt in the profound faith of this man in the resurrection of mm-hmm. Jesus, mm-hmm. no matter how you frame it. And I think the Eucharist is a really important way of that metaphorical framing, yeah. because... You know, when the Jews remember the Passover, it's not somehow a, just a past event. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, they've got the brick dust of Pharaoh's brickyards in their hair and they're ready to flee. Yep. Um, and I'm sure that Jesus intends that we should be remembering in that way, yep. just as, all year round, but I think particularly as we celebrate the mystery of our salvation, that we are also remembered by Jesus. Put back together. Put back together mm-hmm. as the body, made his bread for the world mm-hmm. in, that, in that remembering. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's really, you know, um, some friends of mine have just lost somebody very precious to them. And um, her dad ran me and said, um, we don't know what to do so we're just going to go to Mass Mm -hmm. and um, what those first disciples couldn't do the only thing they could do even though they'd run away and they were so afraid they had to be together to talk about him and as they talked about him he was there
0: Mm -hmm. time's come to an end um can you give us a thought to send us out?
1: It's been a great privilege to, um, to be thinking about Easter, the Easter season in this way. And, um, but I do want to, it was what I was trying to say on Easter Day in the cathedral, that one of the benefits of these short narratives of the resurrection is that it leaves an open-ended space for the, for the experience of resurrection to continue in our lives, that we, that we know the story and the traditions of those first disciples who got made apostles but that the, I think particularly Mark's Gospel, leaves it open-ended that they were fearful, those women but in the end, not at the time expected, but they were witnesses Um, and the disciples did go to meet the risen Lord and I just think that we and it's open-ended for us um, to become part of the story of the resurrection ourselves
0: well thank you uh, Bishop Stephen very much indeed for for coming with us somebody's asked here what comes next after a good Easter and um uh, more Easter <laughs> more Easter forever and ever actually I, I can I can hot from the press today, I can tell you that in December we 'll be having Rowan Williams coming to talk about how we can keep Christmas oh good uh, so uh, that 's uh, uh, for your diary. Keep your eyes out for that, but uh, so there is something coming on uh, after a good Easter, but I, I think whats what strikes me about reading the the resurrection narratives hearing you today um and, and going back to those vital texts of our faith uh, and realizing again that no matter where we are our griefs our losses mm. our mm. doubts it's his fidelity it's his fidelity mm. it's his fidelity towards us mm. that what strikes me that this the Easter story tells us that each of us is worth more than the worst thing we've ever done. And mm. that has also political consequences. And I don't just mean in capital punishment, but in how we live our lives in how we build up Easter environments, how we reintroduce people and, mm. and help them see each other again this seems to me to be a resurrection and political social community faith and you've really helped me and I know I'm sure all of us here uh, see that again and so on behalf of of everybody here this evening thank you very much for coming and for sharing your thoughts on Easter faith thank you